In today's episode, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alan Gittig, a cardiologist here in Mount Sinai, Westchester County, New York. Dr. Gittig has great passion in integrative medicine and all methods that helps patients do better that has an evidence-based approach. In this episode, Alan and I talk about how can we prevent a heart attack and a stroke? What is a plaque that causes arterial problems and stop the blood flow to tissues of the heart and the brain? What causes it? And when you go to your cardiologist, are they really getting all the right cardiovascular biomarkers to determine if you are at risk of a stroke or a heart attack? Because isn't that what we want, right? We want a non-invasive approach to determine our risk for a heart attack or a stroke. Well, we discussed that with Dr. Gittig. And of course, which are the best methods to determine our cardiovascular health and our arterial health? So this is our conversation with a cardiologist, Dr. Alan Gittig. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my full intention to help you optimize your prostate health and live better with age. We have Dr. Alan Gittig on. Alan, thank you so much. You are at your clinical office right now, I know, <laughs> in between patients. Hopefully, your schedule was closed and you're not too backed up after we're done. So I really appreciate your time, as always, and your expertise in cardiology. Thanks for being on. It is a huge pleasure. I'm a huge fan of yours. I love doing this. And I did give specific instructions to all my patients that no one is allowed to have a heart attack between this hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, right? Yeah, it's almost like when we all go to the AUA American Urological Association meeting where is well attended and literally like there's no urologist anywhere yeah. except at the place where we have the meeting. It's like, all right, this is not the time for this weekend. This is not yeah. a good time right. to have a urological problem. You know, wait, just hold off until Monday when we all get back and you'll be attended well. So to me, Alan, you're one of the, I, I have the good fortune of knowing an amazing cardiologist and you're one of the top ones for many reasons because, look, I've sent family members to you, right? You look at things thoroughly. You practice an, an integrative approach. You're extremely knowledgeable in the medical treatments, the interventional side of things, and very knowledgeable in the alternatives. And you stay up to date with the science of both. You really look at what's important. So the main question is, we're trying to make it very simple here, right? Um, heart attacks, they're number one killer in the world. Every 30 seconds, by the time we're done with this podcast, there's going to be quite a few people that have dropped from a heart attack, right? Our mutual uh, friend, Dr. Gade from NYU, I've said, look, I, you know, I'm very proactive, right? And he's my cardiologist. And I said, look, I just want to do everything. I'm really afraid of having a heart attack or a stroke. He says, well, that's funny. I'm just, I'm afraid of getting prostate cancer. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So you're always kind of, you know, very much into, you know, our my, my sister-in-law, who, you know, is a pediatrician, slightest fever with her kids to the yeah. doctor. I was like, you're a pediatrician, just take care of it, right? So we always look at what we do a little bit differently than others and the potentiality of something happening. So I am, you know, so yeah, heart disease and cancer are the two things that, you know, I am on this longevity wave and I want to do as much as possible for myself and my patients and my audience to be on that as well. Heart attacks, every 30 seconds, someone dies from a heart attack. Number one killer in the world. I want to do everything possible to lower the risk and do everything, do every testing that is not invasive to know what's going on. So there's this plaque 
right, that forms in the arteries and that blocks the transfer of blood and then from there oxygen and other things that cannot nourish the tissue, whether it's the heart or the brain as it relates to a stroke. What's a plaque? Let's start from that very fundamental question. Yeah, let's do it. I share your your healthy fear of having a heart attack and respect for the arteries because I have a family history. My own father had early onset coronary artery disease. And, uh, you know, I'm coming to an age, I'm 48, about to turn 49 next month. And oh, man. Uh, I take it very seriously. You know, I actually have started having friends who actually have had problems. Sure. And so I have gotten to the point where, you know, this is top of mind for me. So, but what I think you're right. What we have to do is we have to break it down and explain it to an audience that has thought about it, but hasn't thought about it as much and doesn't yet have the vocabulary to speak about it and understand it. And we need to demystify it because once people understand how a plaque comes to be, and God forbid, how a plaque comes to cause a clot and a heart attack or a stroke, then speaking about and why those things happen, speaking about how to prevent it takes on a different type of clarity. So when we talk about plaque in the walls of arteries, you know, if a plaque just sat in buried deep in the wall of your artery and just sat there inert for forever, you'd never feel it. It would never harm you. You could have a thousand of them spread throughout your arteries. I wouldn't care if I knew if God told me, you know, hey, Never going to act up, going to just sit there quietly. Yes, yeah, so very similar to a tumor, a cancer cell. If a yeah. cancer cell stays in your prostate, doesn't bother anybody, doesn't obstruct anything, doesn't move around, doesn't spread, who cares? 100%. Yeah. The way that plaques cause problems is one of two ways. Either you continue forming enough buildup of plaque, and I realize I didn't answer your question. We'll define what it is in a second. But you know, you've got this gunk in the wall of the artery, either it builds up enough where it just starts encroaching within the lumen, the interior of the artery where blood is supposed to flow, and it obstructs the blood flow, you feel chest pain, you need a stent. Or the worst case that can happen is you've got a plaque in the artery wall that's buried in there and not obstructing flow. But then things happen, which I'll explain later, that cause that to rupture into a clot, and you suddenly occlude the whole artery. And that's where people have heart attacks and strokes. And unfortunately, like you say, it's been the lead, number one killer, cardiovascular disease, for, men, for forever, it seems, certainly in the industrial revolution, post-industrial revolution age. Unfortunately, it's not that uncommon that the first time someone has symptoms is a heart attack or dropping dead because of a massive heart attack. So once you understand that, that's get lets you understand why I take this so seriously and why you take it so seriously. The first it's worth repeating because I have family members and I know people who have symptoms and then they go and they say, well, they realize they've had blocked arteries and then they do a stent or whatever. But it's very important for the audience to understand what you just said. The very first symptom, in my understanding, is up to 50 percent of the times when someone has a heart attack, it's death, not my chest, you know, not just radiating pain on the left side or radiating pain down the left side of your arm. Oftentimes it's just death. There are no symptoms. Correct. I don't think right? it's as high as 50%, although I don't have the number clear in the top of my head, hmm. but too often it's death before you even get to the hospital. Now, because of our modern, one area in which medicine has been miraculous in cardiovascular health is taking care of the acute heart attack patient who hits the emergency room doors. We are incredibly good at it, and it's rare that people die. But it's the death that happens suddenly outside of the hospital. I believe the number I came across several years ago when I was putting together a talk for this was that for 15% of people, the first symptom 
who people who have coronary artery disease, 15% of them, their first symptom is dying suddenly. I think that's the ballpark number. Maybe so. That's just way too high. That's high, sure. So now if you take the traditional medicine approach, it's typically to say, we're going to treat the most obvious risk factors for this disease. And we're going to wait to find out if you have symptoms that tell us you have an obstruction in an artery or symptoms that tell us you're having a heart attack or stroke to get more aggressive. And so that's where these numbers come from. If you take that approach, it's often going to be too late. And so the prevention approach that I use and which we'll talk about is to say it's impossible to know who's going to have this with certainty. But if you look inside the body with imaging, and we've, that's another miraculous way that medicine has evolved in the cardiovascular space, is the amount of imaging available to look at the health of arteries to see where someone is on the spectrum. And you identify somebody who's already got the disease. We don't call them diseased in traditional medicine, but I call them diseased because their arteries are no longer the way they were when they were 12 years old. Yeah. They now have cholesterol plaque. It's not to say I can tell them they will end up with a clinical event, but their arteries are not healthy. And if you do that and then get aggressive about not just the obvious risk factors, but some of the less obvious ones, that's the only way that I have ever found in my review of this ad nauseum that there is a compelling evidence that approach works to completely stop this process in its tracks. It sounds like you're implying that part of the problem is perhaps the insurance-based system that only really will cover for certain diagnostic diagno diagnostics only when something happens, not for not when things are about to happen or when yeah. things are building up. And would you say that's part of the That's issue? part of the problem. You know, it's gotten a little bit better. And there is one test which we'll talk about called the coronary artery calcium scan, which a lot of insurances do cover now. But yeah, part of the problem is that for medical guidelines, for insurance to cover something, it has to show up in medical expert guidelines that now says we suggest this in everyone or it's a very reasonable thing to consider. For a guideline to make that recommendation, it's going to require a certain standard of evidence, which is going to be at least one, if not two, large randomized controlled prospective studies that follow people for a long period of time and show that they have better outcomes if you do this test. In other and, words, a study that will never happen. Yeah. I mean, it has happened with coronary calcium scans, not that you have better outcomes, but that it's a predictor of outcomes. But there are other tests that it's just a very slow process. These other tests coming down the pike using ultrasound, it takes many years. If we wait that long, it's going on average research shows it takes 10 to 20 years for new research findings to show up in guidelines or they never show up in guidelines because it never rises to that level of evidence. But my approach is I understand all of that and I'm not going to sit here and tell a patient that we have that level of evidence. What I'm going to tell them is that it's pretty good next level evidence and that the evidence is overwhelming that the test won't harm them. So when you're looking at the pros and cons of doing this test to get on top of prevention early, to me, it's a no brainer. It might not meet, be something that a guideline committee can put in paper as a recommendation for the entire country. That doesn't mean I'm not going to do it, but that's, that's where right. insurance reimbursement falls off. Thank you for that. Pause on that a little bit because we're going to come back to that. What's a plaque? What's in a plaque? Okay. So the plaque is the end stage of the process, and it's a good place to start. So what is plaque? Plaque is cholesterol and cells in the wall of the artery. Plaque is when cholesterol that is carried into the artery by something called LDL particles 
bad cholesterol, which is a misnomer, but yeah. most people know it as bad cholesterol, LDL. Yeah. Right. So when the LDL particles get trapped in the walls of the arteries, which we'll drill down on later, and that cholesterol then gets bound to by something called a reactive oxygen species, and, it, and the cholesterol content is oxidized, chemically altered, it gets engulfed by macrophages, white blood cells in the wall of the artery. Those are soldiers of our immune system who think they're needed there because they think there's something, they recognize there's something foreign because oxidized cholesterol is now a foreign structure and they engulf it. So when you have macrophages that have been engulfing more and more of these oxidized cholesterol and attempting to degrade it, but they can't, you've got macrophages, these thin walled cells filled up with gunk, with lipid gunk, that's a plaque. Plus you get some migration in what are called smooth muscle cells. So cells and cholesterol forms plaque. And over time, it's important to understand that the natural evolution of plaque mm. is your body will replace almost all of it with calcium. Mm. Uh, and so it goes from being pure cholesterol to being almost all calcified. That's probably a healing mechanism because once it does that, it becomes stable and it now can never rupture into a clot once it's calcified. But that's what plaque is. It's either pure cholesterol or cholesterol that's now become calcified. It Correct me if I'm wrong. I heard you clearly. It doesn't sound to me like it's pure cholesterol that starts the formation of plaque. It sounds to me that it's oxidized cholesterol. So can it be that if the cholesterol is not oxidized under the in the endothelial part of the the inside of the artery, can it be that cholesterol can just live there just fine? No problem. Yeah. The research suggests that would be the case. The research suggests that if the cholesterol were not oxidized, it would not stimulate these macrophages to try to engulf it and destroy it because they wouldn't recognize it as foreign. That's what the research. That's suggests. an important distinction, I think. Yeah. And it's also important because it's probably the case along those same lines that cholesterol is not recognized as foreign because our body is seeing it all the time. That's an important That's right. point. Cholesterol yeah. makes up in a lot of the volume of the sure. density in all of our cell membranes. And it's a building block in this in many biological compounds, including many hormones like the one behind your head on the wall. <laughs> and that's testosterone for those that are can't <laughs> see what's behind my wall. Testosterone molecule. Yeah. And and as such, our body, including these foot soldiers of the immune system, macrophages come into contact with it and don't try to attack it because they know we need it for life in small amounts in the right places. Mm -hmm. But when cholesterol becomes oxidized, it now has a different structure and it triggers the immune response in a way the same as it would if a COVID virus were in the body. Mm -hmm. Can't tell the difference. They think there's something that needs to be destroyed. And because these macrophages cannot break down the oxidized cholesterol and eliminate it, it just keeps filling them up and filling them up. And now you get plaques. So it goes from it goes from oxidized cholesterol being try, being engulfed to some degree of being connected with some of the macrophages, which are members of the white blood cells in an attempt to save you because the macrophages don't know that this is potentially indolent. Maybe it just seizes it as a foreign substance. It attacks from there. It starts creating foamy cells and things like that, all sorts of abnormal structures, which Correct. then calcifies and the body attempts to calcify that scenario for protective exactly purposes. Right. Yeah. So when does it become a problem? The body's trying to protect right. you. What's the problem? So the problem is that if this process continues unchecked over a long enough period of time, you will either have a plaque that now is obstructing blood flow 
there's too much of it, it's not buried in the wall of the artery. It's now actually going towards the center where the blood is flowing, the inside of the pipe, so to speak. So if you picture, you know, a pipe under your kitchen sink, if the plaque was all just sitting in the outer wall of the, you know, the aluminum or PVC or whatever of that pipe, you'd be okay. But now it's obstructing the inside. So you get a clogged drain. So that's a problem. And that can happen whether it's calcified plaque or non-calcified, because if there's just too much bulk and it goes in that direction, it will block flow. But the real problem, the problem that kills people is when you develop inflammation within the plaque itself. In other words, lots of cells that don't, that are trying to, that are being recruited because they think there's a problem there and they're secreting a lot of substances, cytokines and such, ends up through steps that are detailed and we may not have time to get into, causing that plaque to rupture into a clot, causing it to enter the cholesterol to enter into the inside of the artery and platelets who are traveling by to think there's a wound that needs to be healed and all clumping there. And that's how you get a heart attack. It only happens when a plaque is still very cholesterol rich and not yet healed to the point of calcification. So if we go to trying to identify the cause of the issue, right? So, you know, I think that oftentimes in medicine, it's always sometimes it's a band-aid approach. You know, the cause of the problem is the LDL cholesterol bringing in the cholesterol into LDL particles, bringing in cholesterol into the arteries. And then if it's oxidized, then, all, you know, that's macrophages are attacking. How then should, so I, and I'm, the reason why I'm stalling is because I guess I think we can easily have a three hour conversation, if not a three day conversation on this, by the way. Sure. And so I want to make sure that I'm respectful of your time so that you get back to your patients and maybe we'll have you on again. What, so if I'm looking at, let's start with blood work. I, what's the best, and the reason why I ask, Alan, is the following. Still today, not only internal medicine doctors, not only general practitioners, but in my, what I've seen with even some cardiologists, the typical cardiovascular blood panel is total cholesterol, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, maybe he will, CRP, maybe CRP, sometimes not even that, C-reactive protein. So this is still this, what I've seen, standard method of, trying to identify just from blood work and biomarkers, the health of the artery. I think we, for reasons that you will talk about, I think that's just a, not even maybe a starting point. So what are we looking at when we, if our audience cannot come to you and they go to the cardiologist and say, look, can we look at what in terms of blood work? And then we'll go into imaging a little bit later on. Yeah. So before answering that question, I think that it's important for us to just put a bow on the topic we were just talking about a little neatly. The, so the overall view of how this process is, you've got cholesterol floating through the blood, but not by itself. It's part of lipoprotein particles. The most relevant are to this process are called LDL lipoproteins, LDL particles. So you've got these LDL particles floating through the blood carrying cholesterol. Mm. Okay, They are traveling out of the bloodstream at random intervals and getting through the walls of the artery. And in normal, healthy people, we think this probably happens all the time, but the LDL particles pass right through the wall of the artery and get carried away back into the circulation by little tiny capillaries. When you get plaque, you've got too many of these LDL particles that have now become trapped in the artery wall. They didn't make it through to the other side to get taken away by the bloodstream. They're stuck in the wall of the artery. They're now retained there and they're sitting ducts for to become oxidized, have their cholesterol content become oxidized by these reactive oxygen species in the artery wall. 
And once that happens, it triggers inflammation, which are these foot soldier white blood cells gobbling it up, forming plaque. The reason I say to think of this as your construct is because that pretty much makes it demystifies why all of the root cause drivers you want to evaluate for when you're doing blood work, why they're important. Mm. So let's start with the first one. The first one, the most obvious. To be is, clear, briefly, uh, sorry to interrupt. We're talking heart attack prevent, but we're also talking about potentially stroke prevention as well, yeah. right? There's no difference here in this so conversation. There's really no difference. It might be a little bit more powerful for heart attack prevention than stroke prevention, but there's tremendous overlap and it's a close second. Okay. I will also say this, by the way, we're talking about heart attack and stroke prevention based on artery disease, atherosclerosis. This is the name for cholesterol plaque buildup. But remember, I mentioned the reactive oxygen species in the artery wall, that the amount of those that are free and available to wreak havoc is called oxidative stress. And it turns out that oxidative stress is almost certainly, and so an inflammation as well, a key factor in dementia and probably a factor in many types of cancer. Correct. Yeah. So it turns out that all of the risk factors that I suggest we evaluate in someone who's aggressive about prevention that are linked to oxidative stress, which is the vast majority of them, optimizing them also reduces your risk for dementia and good chance it reduces your risk somewhat for cancers. Excellent. I appreciate that comment. You know, when somebody comes to me for prostate cancer, how is this going to cure my cancer? I said, well, that's, you know, that's a, I don't know, but we're going to try to create a microenvironment that's hostile to cancer. But let me make sure you don't want to succumb to dementia or Alzheimer's, yeah. right? I just want to make sure that it's not only, yeah. you don't want to have a heart attack as right. well, right? Like you, the idea here is not only not to die from prostate cancer, but lower your risk of mortality from other diseases. And is that the right? quality of life, right? Because right. the longer I keep them alive without blocked arteries and you keep them alive without cancer, the longer they have to deteriorate and become frail and develop dementia. But if you're doing all of these things right and you're minimizing oxidative stress and inflammation in your body, you're likely going to be functional and have a good quality of life. Which is the ultimate goal, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I, and I, that's a, I, that's to say, you know, the, these protocols help systemically. They don't help just locally. So, yeah. yeah, go ahead. So if we talk about how to evaluate risk, it's a easily an hour podcast, but we'll talk, you know, in brief. The first most obvious thing in that when you think of plaque formation, the way I described it is how many LDL particles are in your bloodstream. Because if you overwhelm the system, if you have just far too many of these particles, and they're constantly traveling through the wall of the artery in huge numbers, then even a relatively healthy artery wall that's not been changed in a way that makes it a lot more sticky and likely to trap the particles can still be overwhelmed. You can get particle trapping in plaque. And how do we know this? Well, because people who have a double mutation that gives them what's called familial hypercholesterolemia and their LDL cholesterol is uh, five to 10 times a normal person's, they get heart attacks before the age of 20 and need heart transplants in their 20s. So we know they're not stressed and sedentary and they don't have belly fat and they're not smoking and all this other mm. stuff. So that's the most important starting point is how many LDL particles do you have in your bloodstream? Now, there, the traditional medical approach is you check LDL cholesterol, but that is a proxy. It's an estimate of the number of particles in your bloodstream. It's technical, it could take us time, but I will just say it's a rough estimate and it's pretty good for the majority of people, but for about 20 to 30% of people, it doesn't give you an accurate sense of how many particles are carrying that cholesterol mass. 
To know that, your best test is called apolipoprotein B, which I'll refer to as ApoB for short. Mm -hmm. And that's because that's a protein that there's one of on every LDL particle. And we have good testing that is reliable and reproducible that can do a blood test and tell you how much there is of that in your blood, which tells you the number of these LDL particles. I will say that some of your listeners who are health conscious and read blogs and et cetera, they've done blood tests that tell them a number called LDL particles, which sure sounds more accurate than ApoB. The problem is that there are different technologies, but all of the technologies that estimate LDL particles by different methods tend to be a little more variable, a little less reliable. It's easier to accurately measure apolipoprotein B in the blood. So that's what I follow. And that's going to tell you your LDL particle concentration. APOB. So to simplify, which you are saying in a very simple way, I want to take it a step further. I want the audience to really understand probably what your physician is, the biomarkers they're looking at is LDLC. I think what Alan is saying, is, if I'm interpreting correctly, is LDL is the particle. Let's call it a boat. And let's say there's four people in the boat. The four people is, the, is analogous to the cholesterol. So it tells you, LDLC tells you the amount of cholesterol in the LDL particle. I think what Alan is also suggesting here is that we don't want to necessarily only look at the amount of people in the boat. We want to see how many boats are around. Yeah, that's the because, LDL particle that you can measure by taking an APOB. Is that exactly a good explanation? because the LDL particles are what are carrying the cholesterol in the that's body. Right. That's what's actually happening. And the plaque is forming because an L, too many of these LDL particles are getting into the artery wall. That's what's actually happening in your body. So there are no free floating cholesterol molecules. So the process is being driven by the number of those particles. Excellent. So if you think about it as, you know, using your boat analogy, which is great. Let's say an army, a hundred soldiers, and they need to transport them from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And you can either say, well, we know we're going to use 25 boats that are each going to carry four soldiers. Mm -hmm. And when they get to point B, we've got, we've tra trafficked a hundred soldiers down the road. Or you could say, you know what? We're going to put a blindfold on you. You're not going to know how many boats there are. We're going to drive you to point B. All the soldiers are going to get out of the boats. The boats are going to be taken away. You can't see them. And now you're going to count all the soldiers that the boats tra traffic there. Mm. You're going to know there are 100 people there. But for all you know, it could have been one boat that took 100 people mm. or two boats that took 50 each. Mm. But the fact that it's 25 that took four each, there are 25 potentially pathogenic particles in that river that can get into the artery wall and cause disease. Excellent. So you need to know that number. And the studies show that if there is a discrepancy, which again affects probably about 30% of people, the risk is related to the number of boats, not the number of total passengers. Excellent. And thank you for that. Even a better explanation. I appreciate that. I think our audience does as well. So then APOB. Am I, I'm going to make a simplify a question here that I know that nothing is so simple. If there's one biomarker that we need that's most relevant to what we're talking about, health of the arteries and the attempt at preventing a stroke or a heart attack. Is APOB the king or queen of all of them at this point? I would push back and say, I really can't give one. I would give three. But if you're going to make me give only one, it would be APOB. Okay. And the reason I is because at the extremes, those kids and teenagers with the genetic abnormality where they have too many of them know they get problems even when they don't have other risk factors. And the flip side is, 
Um, while we know a lot less about these people, it's a newer area of research and we haven't discovered and studied as many individuals. The individuals we have found who have genetic variants that cause them to have extremely low ApoB look like they're extremely protected, almost immune. I hate to say 100% immune, but almost immune to artery disease. The problem is that there's a wide range between those two that looks good or pretty good or fair. And in that range of APOB, it's hard to know if someone predict if someone's going to get disease. So there are other ones that are just that are very important. To hang in with APOB just for another 36 or 60 seconds here, because it's so important. What's a good, what's a range? And so, you know, when we look at ranges, I don't want to be at the higher end. I want to be at the lower end if that biomarker predicts some sort of disease. So what's a, what's the range? What's a good range? And what's an optimal range for you? So I love your questions and I'm not afraid to say when no one knows the answer. I'll tell you what I say to patients. What I say to patients is that almost without exception, there's very few exceptions to this rule that I think lower is better. Okay. I think the research suggests that for sure. Not um, the case for total cholesterol, by the way, that lower is better. I say that because I see a lot of that, Alan, you know, and it, some patients are very high statins to lower, not APOB. We can talk about that association, but to lower total cholesterol, because that's the way they're been taught to think of things. There's problems when cholesterol is too low because you need cholesterol for many other things, including not enough production of testosterone. So yeah. not the case for total cholesterol, I would argue that lower is better. But for APOB, as you said, likely that's the case. Well, that's why I said with few exceptions, because there's a, vi there's a very wide range for which it's unlikely that somebody's peripheral tissues are going to suffer from having too low of an APOB, which you know, in general, they are going to go along with each other. If you have a very low APOB, you're going to have low LDL cholesterol and you're going to have low total cholesterol. But when you push it too low, yes, some of the peripheral tissues can start to suffer, including sex hormone producing tissues and in very rare cases, the brain. But the clinical experience and the research suggests that those are very rare. And you know it because you ask your patients if they're starting to have erectile or low testosterone symptoms, you know, and if they are, we can now do tests in the blood that look for if you're over suppressing their body's cholesterol production and you can back off. So it doesn't kill people. But what I tell people for the APOB is that, by the way, it doesn't kill people and it doesn't ruin their quality of life as long as they're seeing a physician like you or me who is very interested and discusses this and doesn't just keep saying, just take it, just take it, just take it. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you stay on it, your symptoms aren't going to get better. So what I would say is this, the evidence from studies of individuals with genetic variants suggests that having an APOB in the 40 to 60 range is in that range that is almost makes your arteries immune possibly, as well as from research that's been done with high intensity of two classes of cholesterol lowering drugs, statins and something called PCSK9 inhibitors, that when you lower the APOB into that range, it has dramatic disease prevention benefits. So that's 40 a great to 60, between 40 to 60. So now that's a very low and very aggressive range. So if we treated everybody with medicine to get into that range, it is extremely likely we would prevent a ton of the vast majority of disease events. The only issue is that some people will have medication side effects. And again, if you're not seeing a practitioner that's very sensitive to that, and that's looking to kind of thread the needle, you'll live with side effects from it. So that's why we don't do it on everyone. And what I tell people is that having an APOB less than 80 as a, star, as a maximum point 
is very good. And if everything else looks really perfect in your metabolic health and your inflammation markers, which we haven't talked about yet, and everything else, you're probably going to be good there. But I would love to see it under 70. That makes me really excited, unless you're in the highest risk group. And if you're in the highest risk group, I'm looking to get it down closer to 60 and below meaning highest risk, like you've had a heart attack. Uh, by the way, the, I, this is very important. The answer to your question also depends on the runway, the amount of time. If somebody's likely to live 10 to 15 years, the APOB, the number of LDL particles, that's a very slow developing process. It probably takes, based on the autopsy studies, the imaging studies, it probably takes 30 to 40 years from the time the process starts of LDL particles getting trapped until someone gets a stent or has a stroke or a heart attack. Hmm. So lowering APOB is going to slow down the gradual accumulation of plaque. So if I have a patient who's got a very high risk profile and is 50 years old and has 40 years of life left, I'm a lot more aggressive in lowering APOB than if I have someone who's 82 and is at risk. I will say, look, you're probably not going to need to be as low as that to get another 15 years out of healthy artery. So that's the APOB. Should we move on to the next one? In a minute. I'm so immersed and <laughs> I'm so obsessed with APOB right now. You mentioned two sets of drugs that a class of drugs that will lower statins. I think everybody know what a statin is. What was the second one and how does that one help? Oh, so, so yeah, so statins very quickly work by shutting off cholesterol synthesis by inhibiting a rate limiting step in the process. They do that in the liver, which is the organ that makes the most cholesterol and is importantly is the organ that packages the cholesterol into these vehicles, these LDL particles and spits those into the bloodstream. But statins also are indiscriminate. They also will shut down cholesterol synthesis in any tissues in the body that they get into like skeletal muscle, testicular tissue. So they'll stop cholesterol synthesis there as well. They in the liver, when they shut down cholesterol synthesis, that helps lower the number of LDL particles being made. But there's also then a compensation that happens where because the liver cells are sensing that they have less cholesterol content inside the cell, they export more receptors to their surface that are called LDL receptors, which clear the LDL particles out of the blood. You basically have a liver cell that has this intricate system that, by the way, don't think anyone has figured out completely. It's like mm -hmm. a magic black box that says, oh, we're, making a, we're producing a lot less of the cholesterol we need for you know, cell membrane synthesis, et cetera. We need to now start gobbling up all the LDL particles from the bloodstream as much as possible to internalize them and break down their parts and use some of their cholesterol. So now you get more LDL receptors on the surface. So that's the other effect of statin drugs, which is a big one and very important. I mention it because PCSK9 inhibitors, what they do is they inhibit an enzyme, PCSK9, that is involved in the degradation and turnover of those LDL receptors. So normally, when you activate PCSK9, that enzyme, it, the end result of a process is that it causes the LDL receptors to get internalized out of the surface of the cell where they're exposed to the bloodstream and can do their job of extracting LDL particles. They come in and they get broken down and sent out as trash. When you inhibit that enzyme with the drug, you're left to have many receptors on your surface constantly extracting LDL particles from the blood. And so they lower cholesterol dra dramatically, and they've been proven to lower heart attack and stroke risk. Do you typically take PSK9 inhibitors in conjunction with a statin or 
separate from a statin? So it all depends. They are much more potent than statin lowering. Your highest intensity statins will lower your APO, your LDL cholesterol 40 to 50%, your highest potency. Most people get somewhere between 30 and 40%. The PCSK9 inhibitors lower it 50 to 80%. So they're more potent. So they've been used in people who have genetic causes of high cholesterol that are just off the charts. And they're also used in some people who either get a suboptimal response to a statin and don't get this, their cholesterol to the goal they need for adequate prevention, or people who are intolerant to statins. And there are people who get too many side effects, far and away the most common being joint or muscle pain or muscle weakness. And no matter how many hoops you jump through doing all the different tricks, giving them high doses of ubiquinol CoQ10, repleting their vitamin D, using every other day dosing, et cetera, et cetera. They just can't tolerate it. And these medicines are a godsend in those cases to get their numbers down. But a very common case is using the maximally tolerated dose of a statin. You can't get them to go if you add this medicine. So they use independently. They're never using conjunction. No, they're often used in, in conjunction as well. Oh, it all okay. depends on the scenario. You might be a patient who you know needs an LDL cholesterol less than 70 because you've had a heart attack. And uh, all you can tolerate is 20 milligrams of Crestor or five milligrams, let's say, because you get muscle pains and you just can't get your cholesterol to gold. So you add it. Excellent. And what are some examples of PSK9 inhibitor drugs? So there's only two. The PSK9 inhibitors, one goes by the brand name Repatha and one goes by the brand name Praluin. And they both work on the same enzyme. They're both monoclonal antibodies directed towards a specific part of the enzyme and block its activity. Excellent. Thank you for that. What are the other two biomarkers at the top three, according to Dr. Alan Gittig for- Well, I'm going to I'm gonna do four. So the second <laughs> I, one- I think you, I, I teed you up for that, I think. Yeah. yeah go ahead. So the second one I'm going to mention, but it's not in the top three just because it's less common, is called lipoprotein little a. So we're dealing with alphabet soup now. We talked yep. about APO, APOB. Yep. Now we're talking about lipoprotein little a. With essentially what this is, you have LDL particles in your bloodstream carrying cholesterol and they cause plaque. If you have a genetic mutation that causes your liver cells when they're making the LDL particles to make some of them, not all of them, but some of them in an abnormal way, they get an abnormal protein added on to their structure that creates instead of an LDL particle, a lipoprotein little a particle. It's a modified LDL particle that has all the features of an LDL particle, but this extra protein on it that causes it on average to be a lot more likely to cause plaque at an early age and to get heart attacks, clotting events at an early age. It's purely genetic. You can't intermittent fast or exercise or low saturated fat diet your way out of this. And it's not as rare as we once thought. It's probably about 15 to 20% of the population. And it's given as a concentration. It's not just yes or no. So you know the number in your bloodstream. And the higher it is, the higher the risk, the higher you are. So most normal people don't have zero of these particles. Most normal people's blood tests for lipoprotein little a come back as a small number, but it's well below the threshold where risk starts to go up. And if you're above that threshold and the higher you get above it, on average, it's going to increase your risk. And so that's an important biomarker that I would say probably more than 50% of the time is not checked by cardiologists. And what is it that we're looking for? What's a what's the concentration number that... That depends on the units. This is unfortunate. They yeah. have not homogenized this. 
Some check it based on mass. It's called milligrams per deciliter is 30. Above 30, the risk starts to go up. Above 50, the risk is a lot higher. Mm -hmm. That's if it's milligrams per deciliter. You might want to put this in your show notes. Some labs more often, actually, the majority check it as concentration, nanomoles per liter. Mm -hmm. And above 75, the risk goes up quite a bit. And if you did all the chemistry, you know, Avogadro's equation, blah, 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 stuff that I don't remember. They're the same, those two cutoffs, they're just different units. Okay, great. And so what would, so I had Joel Kahn, a cardiologist from Detroit, integrative medicine on, and he, I think he wrote a book, a plant-based way to lowering lipoprotein A. So in his experience, first of all, he's a big plant-based doctor and, and a prescriber. The other is that he, in his experience, or I'm not sure if it's research, plant-based diet will lower lipoprotein A to optimal levels. What's your experience? And that's interesting. I would have to read whether it's through diet or drugs. Yeah. So in my experience, that doesn't work at all. Personally, I have never seen anybody, including my patients who go completely whole food, plant-based, lower their lipoprotein, lower A. They do lower their apolipoprotein B quite a bit in many cases, the number of traditional LDL particles, but not these abnormal ones. But again, you know, I haven't looked at Joel Kahn's research or his book, and I'm, maybe I'm, there's stuff I don't know. The only thing I have ever come across that has led to meaningful reductions in that number without the use of exogenous substances is prolonged fasting. Mm-hmm. There have been case reports of people who have fasted for seven days, water only fast, water and bone broth, and their LP little a has come down a lot. Mm. But of course, that's not a tool that I'm going to use routinely in people. The only exogenous substances out there that lower LP little a meaningfully are high doses of niacin, a B vitamin, and these PCSK9 inhibitors that we spoke about. It wasn't the reason they were created. It was a happy accident based on the research done in these studies of patients that got it. We don't know why still, but they tend to lower LP little a, usually 25, 30, 40%, sometimes 50 to 70%. So you get a they're not approved. They're not approved for that use. You can't apply for insurance yeah. coverage for the drug because of that. Right. Sure. But I'll say this, when I have patients who have coronary disease or are on the path because I've done imaging tests and they have way too high a burden of atherosclerosis hiding in their arteries and they have a high LP little a, if we can get them a PCSK9 inhibitor, in addition to a statin, because statin has other benefits on inflammation that there are standalone, no one, no other medicine matches. I feel a lot better if I see that LP little a come down meaningfully, like 50% or more. Lovely. What are, since you mentioned the PSK9 inhibitors, what are the major, most common side effects? And now let's give a little love to our sponsor. You know, we are here in Heart Health Month, February, and this is the Heart Series here at Dr. Geo Podcast. And I want to thank our sponsor, Calroy. Calroy produces two excellent dietary supplements. One is called Arteriosol HP, and the other one is Vasconox. And both do an excellent job in supporting cardiovascular health. 
Arteriosol HP helps with the production of the endothelial glycocalyx. You'll learn about that with Dr. Miles Spar in this series, where you need that particular lining in the endothelial cells to help your heart and your blood vessels and vascular system work well. Vasconox works in the proper production of nitric oxide to, again, help your vascular system and your heart stay nice and healthy. Arteriosol HP and Vasconox make the perfect combination for vascular support. Give your glycocalyx and nitric oxide production the attention they deserve. Heading over to the website, calroy.com backlash geo. That's calroy, C-A-L-R-O-Y.com backlash D-R-G-E-O. I'll see you there. And side effects with those... So actually, I hate to make it sound like too good to be true, but so far it's pretty amazing. They're not brand new, we, you know, but we're not there yet where we have the full evolution of our understanding of all the side effects, but based on the side effects in the studies and in the post-marketing analyses and what I see in my patients, they are one of the cleanest drugs with few off-target effects, that, which makes sense because they've made an antibody that's very specific for a site of action on a given enzyme. Essentially, you almost never see muscle or joint issues the way you statins. Almost, I've seen one patient personally who it turned out it probably wasn't. She ended up staying on it and it went away. Rarely, you'll see liver enzyme spikes, which happens with every cholesterol medicine, but very rarely here. You can get injection site reactions, redness, swelling at the injection site. Um, and a small percentage of people, for reasons we don't understand, get like nasopharyngitis symptoms, stuffy nose, sore throat. The one that I have my eye on the most, which is a known side effect of statins, is hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, and elevated blood sugars. Ha wasn't described yet, but I've had several patients who wear continuous glucose monitors, mm. and it is very clear in two or I think three off the top of my head that their blood sugar goes up. And I've mm. started to see that now coming out on some of those, you know, those long lists the pharmacy gives with your prescription. My right. patients are showing me it says sugar. I suspect that in 10 years, if not, you know, maybe five years, but somewhere in that range, we'll probably understand that they can raise blood sugar in some susceptible people. Excellent. The two other, now we're up to four now total, the two other biomarkers. Yeah. So one is not a single marker, but a class of a group of them, which is for inflammation, right? We talked about how important inflammation and oxidative stress. We talked about how important those two things are in the process of atherosclerosis formation in the body. And so there are various lab tests available to try to evaluate if somebody has too much of this going on in their body. I don't believe that the research on any one of these tests is definitive enough to say, if you're above a certain threshold on this one test result, we know you have inflammation in your arteries or oxidative stress overload in your arteries. Mm. But when you do a panel of a bunch of these, if you see one that's abnormal, you, your antennas start to go up and you start to look more at the deeper root causes in the person, lifestyle, et cetera, that can be causing it. And when several are up, it makes it very likely that's what's going on. Now, we're not going to have time to go through what each of these is actually measuring, but just to name them, you have something called HSCRP, high sensitivity CRP which is very sensitive, meaning if you have inflammation in your body, this will go up. But not it's necessarily not necessarily only in your arteries, but correct. in your body. It's not very specific for the, yeah. 
if you have bad cases of arthritis, it can go up. Any infectious illness, it'll go up. Urine microalbumin to creatinine ratio. You're measuring how much at low levels, but still more than normal of this protein albumin are getting into your urine instead of being kept in the, by the kidneys filtration, kept in the blood out of the urine. And that is measuring function and often inflammation causing dysfunction of these endothelial cells lining the capillary walls, the blood oh, vessel Fascinating. Walls. That's the one I, I didn't know that one. And um, so it's and, urine, and, albumin, and creatinine levels, the ratio between yeah, the two. Exactly. And those first two, the CRP and the urine, albumin, creatinine, those usually are not a problem for insurance coverage. They'll usually pay for it. They're commonly used and they're inexpensive. By the way, what I should say is that for every one of the ones I'm going to mention, there are some studies that have shown it predicts risk of heart attacks and strokes better than just age, blood pressure, cholesterol, et cetera. But there are also some studies that for some of these, there are some studies that didn't show that. And so it's not all about one of these tests. It's about doing the panel and interpreting it as a whole. But okay. so those are two. Then you have something called LPPLA2. And that is a something that is released when macrophages are gobbling up oxidized cholesterol, hmm. they elaborate this enzyme and it becomes more active. And if you measure the activity of this in the bloodstream, it can indicate that there's inflammation and a high risk for inflammation in the wall of the artery. LPP? LA2. LA2. Okay. Yep. Then there's something called myeloperoxidase activity. is an enzyme released by white blood cells when they're trying to degrade, the to kill the bacteria or the oxidized cholesterol that they engulfed. And then we have something called F2 isoprostane, and that is something that's measured in the urine. Now, we need an amazing lab test to tell if you have too much oxidative stress in your body. All of the previous tests I mentioned look at inflammation, immune system activity. For looking at too much oxidative stress, we don't have great tests. The actual reactive oxygen species are short-lived. We can't measure them. So we try to measure different things that have been bound to by those species and rendered chemically, structurally altered. And if there's too many, we use that to tell us there's too much oxidative stress. So there's a few different ones of these. They're used in research. F2 isoprostane is available clinically, and it's measuring a chemically oxidized altered form of a derivative of prostaglandin. And if that's elevated, it, it's a possible warning that you've got oxidative stress. You have to keep in mind with all of these things, you know, as consumers or as the doctors, the lab is a black box. We don't ever go visit it. We don't know anything about the methodology. We don't know anything about the test performance. So true. No test is 100% accurate, right? Yeah. We send off a blood sample. We get a paper with a result. But in my discussions with people who are real experts in the space of clinical lab, especially testing for cardiovascular risk, what I've come to realize is these tests, the way they're collected matter, and the more technologically complicated it is to run the test, which is the case with F2 isoprostane, the test features, even in the best hands with the specimen collected the best, there's gonna be a coefficient of variation. In other words, you run the same sample 10, 15 times, how wide are their display of the results? And so that's an issue with some of these tests, especially the F2 isoprostane. So I never tell a patient, you have high oxidative stress based on a single result. 
Although if it looks amazing or crazy high, like one I saw recently, you probably are at that end of the spectrum. If you repeat it and it's still there, good chance it's telling you something important. And furthermore, the proof is in the pudding. If it's high and I tell you it may or may not be telling us something, but you know what? I suspect you have sleep apnea and that since we know that can cause oxidative stress in the body. And all of a sudden, you've had two tests that come back high. You start treating your sleep apnea, and they all come back normal. It's enough of an experiment in your particular body that I think we know we've shut down oxidative stress. In beautiful. Body. A beautiful holistic view of what can go wrong, and not just the microfocus, just the heart and the arteries of the heart. Love it. We haven't I think done that the fourth yet. The last few that you mentioned were a group. They were not the fourth. So there is a fourth. And what is that fourth? So the third was inflammation and the fourth is insulin resistance. Mm. Okay. Biomarkers of insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is when our body stops doing its job normally to process, to handle glucose in the bloodstream. Mm. And as a result, our pancreas has to start making more insulin to bind as many active sites on receptors as possible to get the same effect mm. at the extreme end of this is diabetes. One step before that is prediabetes. But then there's a long home stretch before you become pre-diabetic where you have insulin resistance. In other words, the definition of pre-diabetes is your blood sugar tests have gotten above a certain threshold that expert consensus committees have decided we're going to use as the cutoff. And Which they is, based, a, is it 100 units? So, so they base this on cutoffs that predict the high risk of developing diabetes over the next seven to 10 years. The hemoglobin A1C test is the most widely used for this right. purpose. Mm -hmm. And when that is 5.7 or above, it's considered prediabetes. Right. If you do the fasting glucose value, it's less useful because that's a spontaneous one second reading. But if it's 100 on multiple occasions, it's considered prediabetes. If it's over 100, it's prediabetes. Over 100, great. That, thank um, you. Once you get to a hemoglobin A1C of 6.4, that's considered diabetes. But the point is that this is a spectrum and people are pre-diabetic on average for, sorry, people are insulin resistant without pre-diabetes for 10 years before they reach that threshold. And during that time, you're still having spikes in your glucose and insulin, sometimes quite high after you eat. And those spikes up and down like that create, guess what? Oxidative stress and inflammation in the arteries and the brain for that matter. So the hemoglobin A1C is an important test. The fasting insulin is an important biomarker because if that's over 10, it really suggests you have insulin resistance. There's a test called fibrinogen, which can help with inflammation. But if it's the only, if the inflammation looks great and the fibrinogen high, is high, it's a clue that I like to use for insulin resistance. And, but ultimately, the oral glucose tolerance test, which is an involved test that you do, you drink sugar and then you check your blood at an hour and two hours is the only way to know for sure. Is that still the gold standard? Definitely the gold standard. I just don't see it happening much. Maybe because it's just too daunting and long and so forth. I just don't see it. People being... don't like doing it, but it's harmless. Yeah. But, you know, I would say this in my practice, again, I'm not interested in reducing risk. Ultimately, that's all I'm doing. Anything we do is reducing risk just like your financial advisor reduces your financial risk because we can never get to zero risk. But my goal, my aspiration is not lower risk. It's zero risk, even though I know I can never be sure I'm there. Sure. And so in my practice, again, because I think that the most compelling evidence out there for prevention 
comes from an approach where you identify plaque, people who are starting to get plaque, and then you optimize every known root cause driver. And by the way, I'll give a shout out to Bradley Bale and Amy Doneen, two brilliant preps that developed the Bale Doneen method and their book, Healthy Heart, Healthy Brain, outlines their many years of research and their research, sorry, their many years of practice and the results in their patients, which is why I think it's the most compelling. In my mind, if you're at risk, if you're not just an average person, but you have real risk factors, I would add glucose tolerance test. I want to be sure you're optimal. How long is and a I glucose do tolerance it. test? It's a couple of hours in the office and you take you, you a couple hours in a lab. Usually in a lab, I mean, yeah. some offices do it. We don't do it in my, I send those people to a lab to do it. And they're taking blood every what? 30 minutes, 60 minutes to um, see where you different labs have different protocols and different doctors like to do it different ways. You definitely want your one hour and two hour values. That's the bulk of the research is on that. That of diagnosing prediabetes or diabetes is your 60 minutes and your 120 minutes value. For insulin resistance, I saw some data and I use, so I don't know about the value of individually just looking at triglycerides and individually looking at HDL, high density lipoprotein particles, but that ratio triglycerides to HDL seems to be a good indicator of insulin resistance. Absolutely is. With the caveat that a small fraction of people will have genetic abnormalities that cause them to have high enough triglycerides or low enough HDL or both in the absence of insulin resistance. But that is a very sensitive marker, meaning it'll pick up a huge chunk of people with insulin resistance. The trick there is that ratio, the actual threshold, which I know is on the tip of your tongue that you're going to ask me for. That's very different from ethnicity to ethnicity, and we don't have enough data to know exactly in different groups. I don't have those values off the top of my head. I will say that in Caucasians, if your ratio is above three, it's very likely you have insulin resistance. Mm. And if it's over two, 2.5, it's a pretty good likelihood. You really should mm. think about it. But those ratios between two and three are, or even a little over three are a little off in different ethnicities, especially Southeast Asian and ethnicity end this conversation without talking about imaging. So I, what I want to do, right? So I'm a patient and I'm super proactive. And again, I'm looking, I want to look at the health of the arteries of my arteries of cardiovascular arteries and just arteries in general to, with the goal of preventing a stroke or a heart attack for as long as possible. I look at these biomarkers. Okay. Some, you know, I don't know that any bio, when you take a few biomarkers that every, you know, all are perfect at any given one time, right? So that's why you have to look at it from a total perspective, look at it, how they, the total biomarkers, but I want to go harder. I want to, I want to go more. I want to, I want to actually see how my arteries look. What are the tests for that? And what are some of the choke points from getting those tests yeah. done? Yeah, so I agree. It's absolutely, I can't live in my practice of prevention without all the biomarkers we we're talking about. But I also can't live without atherosclerosis imaging mm. because at the end of the day, all of the biomarkers, they do tell us about your metabolic health, your inflammation. They tell us how your body is working. None of them tell us about how healthy your arteries are. The only thing that tells us that you either have currently unhealthy arteries or that they were unhealthy in the past up until this point is imaging and showing that you have atherosclerosis. Now, the ideal world, which I hope to see in my lifetime, is that we have a tool 
that has been tested in enough thousands of patients that we know for sure above a certain number increases risk within this amount and that gets you really at higher risk and it's very quantitative we can give a number we know exactly what we're dealing with and we can repeat it over time that's very key that we can repeat it over time to say i've been working with you for a year now or two years now have we slowed down this process or preferably stopped it we don't have those tools yet at the moment for atherosclerosis imaging looking for evidence of plaque again we're talking about before it's obstructing an artery there is no test let's go head to toe you can't image brain arteries okay there are mri studies and cat scan studies of the vessels in the brain none are approved for this purpose none are really studied and protocoled for this purpose so you don't have an agreement of how to do it and none are sensitive enough to see small levels of plaque in those small arteries so it's just off the table. Unless you get obstructive disease, we'll never know what's happening in your arteries early in the brain at this point in time. I think we'll get there, but we're not there yet. To know what's happening in the arteries of your heart, you can do something called a, a type of CAT scan called a CT angiogram, where you inject contrast dye into the vein in the arm you wait till it circulates through the bloodstream to get to the arteries of the heart and you take really clear gorgeous pictures that get me very excited when i see them in cross-section and that is the gold standard to know how much plaque is in a person's arteries and what percentage of it is cholesterol rich and what percentage of it is calcified where it is is it all burrowed deep in a wall or is some of it encroaching on the artery and almost at a point of cutting off blood vessel supply and also, is it in areas of the vessels where if it closes off, you're almost certainly going to die or areas where you're going to have a heart attack and 99% likely be fine. Mm. That's the gold standard, but it's not approved by any insurances for prevention or almost all. Maybe there are Cadillac plans out there, but and it costs a thousand bucks and it's not a high amount of radiation, but it's too much radiation for me to do that on you every year or two to manage you for every year you know, or two. So, so and that was what I was thinking. So I would like to look at this thing, you know, if it had no side effects from the radiation, which we know it does at least once a year. So I can make sure that things, you know, that things are in check. Also another, there's also another problem with it. We have widely agreed upon measurements. Remember I talked about that quantitative piece is clear. You've got to, it, it's not about a reader saying there's a small amount or a large amount. You want something that has been studied extensively and we know how to measure. And we could say you have X number of units of plaque. And we know that if you gave it to 10 different readers, they'd all come up with a very similar X number. And then if that goes up in a year, you know it's progressing. We don't have that for that test. There are companies out there constantly working at it on it. I have no doubt that at least one of your patients, just like dozens of mine have said, I've heard about this clearly thing. What's this thing? So yeah. that's a company that's working out their own algorithm to measure this. And some people are big believers. To be honest, I just haven't had the bandwidth to drill into their research and talk to the company execs and know, but they are giving you something quantitative, which is a start. And certainly, you know, if I work with people at my institution who I have a relationship with, who are amazing readers at this, and I say, tell me if you think it's progressed, that's something, you know, but we don't have that quantitative aspect and there is the radiology component in the cost. So without the quantitative aspect and do we know for sure how much exposure we can undergo before it becomes uh, harmful? 
we don't know anything for sure with radiation. It's all based on statistical modeling done by nuclear physicists, you know, scientists, based on things like the Chernobyl exposure, you know, Hiroshima, and looking at what exposures cause disease. And there's also a significant time lag. So it takes on average 15, a minimum on average of 15, 20 years to see cancer effects of radiation. So this conversation is very different if someone's young versus sort of, you know, in the twilight of their life. But we don't have a definite threshold where we know it's a problem. We do know that this scan is done in most places with a total of what's called three millisieverts because they're constantly working on algorithms to limit the radiation exposure. And it's gotten way better. It was mm. 10 millisieverts when I started out in practice. Mm. Now it's gotten down to, to about three millisieverts. And in some places they get down closer to one to two millisieverts. A regular chest x-ray is 0.1 millisieverts. So this is anywhere from 10 to 30 chest x-rays. By the way, is still less than the total annual background exposure of radiation you get by walking the Earth's surface, by taking an airplane flight where you get a little bit of atmospheric radiation exposure. You know, so it, it's still on the low end, but I'm not going to do it to you every year for the next 30 years of your life. Mm-hmm. And so what's the value? In other words, you know, my blood work comes out fine. I still want to get a CT angiogram. I want to see everything. I just yeah. want a baseline. And by the way, I do it in some people. I, you know, it's not that I never do it once. I just don't do it serially, you know, repeatedly. Right, sure. But without the quantitative value, then what am I looking at? What's the value? So, so if you're having symptoms, that's totally different discussion. Sure. It's great at telling you if, it's the, if the arteries are the cause of your symptoms. For prevention, what's the value? So if your arteries are normal, there is no plaque anywhere. That's incredible value. That means you're still 12 years old in terms of your artery. Now that doesn't mean you're immune forever. And I see this with people. I see this with people who have, I've had two patients in my practice who have autoimmune issues and can't tolerate any medications and their APOB is through the roof and their LP little a is through the roof and they don't want to take medicines. And one was in her 50s and one was in her late 60s. And they both did a CT angiogram and they were normal. Mm. Mm. So what I told them is that I'm That's still actually interesting because it's almost like before the biomarkers, it seems like get a CT. If you could, if insurance would pay for it, which oftentimes it wouldn't in this situation, get a CT angiogram and then get, oh, get it at least simultaneously yeah. as opposed to letting the just the blood work dictate whether or not you should get it. Right. So, I mean, the thing is, you know, we don't have all these answers, but if it's normal, Remember, I told you that it takes 30 to 40 years in the vast majority of cases, probably, that's what the research shows, to, to start the process and end up with clinical disease. So if your CT angiogram is normal and you're in your 50s, it's unlikely you're going to have a serious problem, even if you want to be a little bit cautious, say in the next 15 to 20 years. Okay, so at that point, we reframe our discussion and we say prevention is still important. But you should know that the things we do now are probably not going to prevent you from having a stent or a heart attack until at the earliest 10 to 20 years from now. Okay, so that's an important thing it tells us. It also tells us if you have plaque, is your plaque all calcified? If it is, you formed plaque, but your body has held it in check. And right now you have none that can cause you a heart attack or stroke. If you have plaque and a fair portion of it is non-calcified plaque, 
then one of two things is likely. Either it's formed recently because it's too short of a time. Most, the vast majority of plaques probably calcify completely within five to eight, 10 years. Or if you have a lot of non-calcified plaque, you're probably actively forming within the last couple of years, or you may not have formed most of it recently, but you're still not healing it and you're getting a small trickle that's coming in and something about your body is not healing it. So that's important too. And even though non-calcified plaques usually don't cause a heart attack or stroke, because the odds are, even if you're not seeing me and you're not being a great, you know, patient, you're still going to calcify them. If you have a heart attack or stroke, it did come from a non-calcified plaque or a mostly non-calcified plaque. Mm. If there are none, it's off the table right now. If it's on the table, I say, you don't wait, you get super aggressive right now, not in a year, not in two years. Yes, keep eating healthy and exercising, but I'm not going to wait until we give another year of rounds of testing. I'm going to get you on meds now. Excellent. And, la- and this is it. The I actually score- think I'm okay. I don't think my next oh, good. will show up. Oh, oh no, excellent. he is here. He is here. So I need to. I would. No, you're not getting fifty thousand texts from the front desk right now. Well, my phone's on mute. I've got a few, not fifty. <laughs> what? That would be me. I would be getting a ton of texts and so forth. Calcium score or CAC. Yeah. That you could do that separately, or that's part of the CT angiogram. Yeah. So it's routinely done when you do the CT angiogram, but it looks at something different. It's just measuring the total number of units. Of- of calcium deposits in the artery walls. That test, if you just do that part, if you don't do the dye injection and the very fancy images within the artery lumen, if you just do a calcium scan test, it's like you are looking at my body. The camera is over here. You're seeing my body. The calcium is deep inside and it shines so brightly white on CAT scan images that it gets detected very clearly. You know it came from this part of the artery but you have no idea how much plaque is there. You just know there's a lot of calcium within whatever plaque is there and it cannot see non-calcified plaque, okay? Mm -hmm. But the more calcified plaque you have, the more non-calcified plaque you certainly formed because all of that calcified plaque was born as baby plaques that were non-calcified originally. And the more likely you are to have non-calcified plaques now or to form them in the very near future because you are a plaque former. It gets calcified plaques without also forming non-calcified plaques. That's the natural history. So there are tons of studies in tons of patients showing that your calcium score, which is an extremely reproducible, every person will get the same number. You circle it on the screen, the software computes it, predicts risk of heart attack and stroke better than all the other risk factors out there. And the reason is the calcified plaque you're seeing is not what causes that heart attack, but the non-calcified plaque that goes along with it or is in your near future is what does it. So that is a very useful test. Insurance often covers it. I'd say in my experience, it's 50-50, but it's much cheaper. So about 100, I pay like 100 bucks, 150 bucks for it. The low end is 75, the high end is 250, and most places Mm -hmm. 150. It's very little radiation. It's one millisievert. So it's a third of the CT angiogram. It's about 10 chest X-rays. Unfortunately, looking at it and saying, well, we have, so that meets the criteria of the quantitative and reproducible threshold. And it meets the criteria that it's cheap and low radiation. So it's actually not a particularly dangerous thing to do regularly. I don't know that I'm comfortable with people getting it every year for 30 years, but every few years, 
Yeah. Uh, also, it doesn't change drastically within a three to five year time frame. All right. The problem is we're just running out of time. This is such great information and I would love to. Come I'm going to have you on. So don't you worry. I'm going to have you back on. Okay, deal. The problem is that the serial changes in that cal in that calcified plaque number, they're only useful in people who aren't taking statin drugs. If you're just looking at someone's body and saying, how much plaque are you forming? Well, you're extrapolating. You're just saying how much calcified plaque is there now and how much is there in three, five years from now? And you're assuming the increase in that number is more plaque forming. Okay. But what you don't actually know is was let's say I scan you today and you score of 10. And for reference, what does that mean? What's good? What's really bad? Just so, see, so that we know what 10 really means. So a calcium score of zero means your risk of heart attack or stroke in the next five to 10 years is close to zero. Okay. Once you're over zero, your risk starts to go up significantly. It goes up a little between one and a hundred. It goes up a moderate amount between 100 and 300, and it grows up a lot after 300. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. But if you have a cal 10 calcium units on a calcium scan today, I have no idea how many non-calcified units you have of plaque. The scan can't see that. Yep. So if I know you have 10 units of calcified plaque, you might have 10 units of non-calcified plaque as well. If we repeat the scan in five years and you now have a score of 20, so you have 20 calcified units. If you started off with 10 calcified and 10 non-calcified and we did an intervention which was effective, it totally stopped the process of atherosclerosis so you didn't make one speck more of plaque and it allowed your body to heal all of this non-calcified plaque and make it calcified. Now you have 20 units of calcified plaque and zero units of non-calcified plaque. That's the healing mechanism. That's how do we a know, good thing. How do you know that from the results? I'm not following. You so, don't. That's the problem. Uh, the calcium scan, it's not possible to know that because yeah, right. all you're seeing is this part here, the calcified right. plaque. You have right. no idea about this. So right. if the score goes up over time, it may be that you had a bunch of non-calcified plaque before, You've done healthy things for your arteries, and all you're seeing is that non-calcified plaque has healed over and become calcified. It's also possible that when we took that snapshot originally and you had a calcium score of 10, you didn't have any non-calcified plaque, mm -hmm. but over time, you're forming more plaque and it's calcifying. We don't know. Yeah. So that's why serial calcium no score numbers are not that helpful. They're somewhat helpful in free-living people, not on statins. The reason why they're not helpful on statins is because statins are very potent to stabilizing plaques and accelerating their calcification to take them off the table. So it's an expected result that calcium scores go up when you're taking a statin. In those cases, it's almost certainly not that you're forming a lot of extra plaque, but that you're healing what you had. We just, you don't know the difference. So serial calcium score tests are not very helpful in terms of using the numbers as they go up. They're only helpful if you're doing it and a person is staying at zero. Wow. I know this, it feels like a masterclass, although I know that it's a masterclass would be more extensive and more and longer. 
Thank you, Alan, so much. We well, will... I think, Gio, before we finish, what I think I should take five yeah, please. is to talk about vascular ultrasound. Because oh, I'm loving it. Thank you. Go ahead. Go right ahead. The, that's where the future of this yeah. field is going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if vascular ultrasound has no radiation, so there's no side effects whatsoever. Yep. Okay, you're doing a sonogram like a pregnant woman gets on her yep. unborn baby, and you're measuring the amount of plaque. It is in its infancy, but it is clearly showing results in research where they have advanced, sophisticated programs that are developing protocols to measure plaque size and plaque burden. But when you do an ultrasound of your carotid artery or your aorta in your belly or the arteries in your groin and your legs, you can see plaque there. With traditional two-dimensional ultrasound, you can see most of the vessel wall. With the newest ones that are that the research is being done in three-dimensional ultrasound, you can be sure you're almost definitely not missing any part of the artery wall. Mm. You can see all the plaque that's there, what is calcified and what is non-calcified. Mm. And they're working out the measurements to quantify it as a number. In research studies that have been done using their own protocols, there's no one protocol to measure, and they've done measurements on the plaque burden, it is very clear that those numbers and changes over time definitely are going to be very powerful predictors of heart attack and stroke risk. Mm. That's down the pike. At the moment, you can do a vascular ultrasound test. You can know if you have plaque or not. Again, normal arteries, it's very healthy to know where, very helpful to know we're at that beginning stage. Mm. And you can know if it's non-calcified or not, which is helpful for the reasons I stated. If it's non-calcified, you've more likely mm. formed it early, formed it recently. The only quantitative test that exists at the moment is something called carotid intima media thickness. That is not measuring the burden of plaque. It's looking at the thickness of a certain interface in the wall of your carotid artery. Mm. Before plaque forms, you start getting thickening of this part of your artery wall. Why? Because LDL particles are trapped there and macrophages are flocking to the site and engulfing them and they add a thickness. A lot of research suggests that the thickness of your artery wall and how it relates to normograms compared to your age, what percentile you are, is a very powerful predictor of risk. This study has fallen out of favor and it's no longer in the guidelines recommended because there have been too many studies that have shown it doesn't lead to predictive results. But a ton of studies have shown that it does, including a fairly recent meta-analysis of all the studies. And there's a lot of methodological variability which affects these results. A lot of people don't do it. It's a very precise tool. A lot of people don't do it perfectly well. A lot of people choose the wrong sites to measure, but if done in good hands, my reading of the literature is it probably is predictive in the vast majority of people. This is available today, although there's very few places that do it. I actually don't have it up and running in my program yet, and I don't know of anyone in my area that you can get it done, but I will have it up and running. And it's one more piece of information. It's not the be all and end all. But if this is going in the wrong direction, it's an important piece of information. And conversely, if it's going in the right direction with interventions, it's a good piece of information. So what I would say is I think the future of this field is serial measurements of plaque volume with three-dimensional ultrasound imaging. But we're probably close to 10 years away from having agreed upon ways to do that. And so you're not be interested to knowing what, you know, within the next 10 years, of course, I'm sure that artificial intelligence will play some 
aspect of some role oh, in sure, that like yeah. it will with everyone else. I'd be interested how that works out within the next five to 10 years. But, you know, at this point in time, you still get a ton of information from a calcium scan, a lot, which is what I use routinely in my practice. A lot of information from doing ultrasounds of other arteries. Start, I always start with the carotids to see plaque, yes or no, and is it calcified or not calcified. And it's plaque find- in the carotid potentially if you if you see plaque in the carotid arteries, which is the ones in, in your neck, around your neck, is that an indicator perhaps that you have plaque somewhere else, whether it up in your brain or down in your heart somewhere? It's a very powerful pre- indicator. If you have it, all the studies show you're at high risk of heart attack and stroke. Seeing is not going to cause that heart attack or stroke. To get a stroke from carotid artery plaque, you need an enormous amount that's encroaching more than 50 to 70% of the lumen. If we do these imaging studies on normal people with normal physical exams, we, all, we very rarely, almost never find that. We're finding small plaques themselves, they're never going to cause an event. But the reason that the risk is higher is because it's a window you look at that tells you're much higher likelihood to have that plaque in arteries of your heart. But remember the brain, which we can never image with any available test. The moment I think the state of the art prevention is you have calcium scans in select patients. You do CT angiograms, not often, but here and there. You do vascular ultrasound to see if arteries look completely normal. And if you can get access to carotid intermediate thickness, you have to try to find a way to do diligence to find out what company is doing it and who's interpreting it. But if it's highly vetted and find out that company does very frequent quality assurance testing on their scanners and their readers. And if you can do that combination of tests, it's not where we will be in 10 years, but it's a very good place at the moment to get a sense of your risk. Wow. Phenomenal. Final thoughts or are those your final thoughts? Uh, I like, you've been very generous, I have to say, with your time, and I appreciate you so much. And again, you'll be invited once again to come back and talk about, I don't know, things like blood pressure and the importance well, of that. Well, besides for that, right, you asked me about biomarkers. I was pressure is a hugely important biomarker. I think the next, the conversation we have to have is what do you do? How do you get these numbers down? Yeah. Whether it's blood pressure or the lab tests, but uh, we'll make that happen. Yeah. But my final thoughts are this disease happens. You don't think it's going to happen to you and it might not, but a fit. Let me leave your audience with, you know what? We didn't get to this, but they have to hear it on average, all comers, wide range of health, obesity, BMI, et cetera. A 50 year old man has a 50% chance of developing cardiovascular in the remaining lifetime. Mm-hmm. A 50 year old woman has a 40% chance. Okay. You wear a seatbelt because of a much lower risk of getting into a car accident. My thing is, yes, it's a lot more effort than wearing a seatbelt, but almost everybody who cares about longevity and quality of health should be getting on top of this. The other thing is that in studies that have looked at healthy 40 and 50 year old people, 60 to 70% have plaque in one vessel when they do the calcium scans and all these different arteries throughout the body on ultrasound. Now, I, that, those populations were in Spain and there's like 20%, I think, were smokers, something like that. So it's probably lower here, but if they were 60 to 70%, we're easily 40 to 50% in our 40s and 50s. So the point is, if you're serious about this, it's one of the top things to be serious about. And to really be on top of it, you've got to find out where you stand in terms of your health with inflammation, your cholesterol in the blood and insulin resistance. And you've got to find out whether you're starting to form plaque. And if so, is it a lot? And that's the take home. The, once you do that, 
you can gauge how intensely to op try to optimize every known root cause driver. And if you do that, the evidence is quite compelling. You're going to live out your life without a problem. You know, Alan, I'm listening to you, and I, the bit, the, and I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm also listening to the potential that you're not saying, but I'm interpreting the potential challenge with that. And what that is, yeah, my audience will hear this and they'll be pumped up. They're like, "Yep, got it. Know what to do." Not too many cardiologists are functioning like you are and looking at all these other biomarkers and making suggestions have a similar approach to the what I would call the get approach. What do you do then? Yeah, there's not a lot out there who are like this. I agree. There are some out there and some who, you know, you could sometimes go and see just once a year and then do other things remotely with them. It's a challenge. The other problem is, and I hate this about our field, it costs money. I mean, insurance does not invest heavily in prevention because they're not going to see the returns because most people change insurance plans every few years. So I hate the fact that this is not available mainstream. I'll tell you, I've been very dedicated to bringing this as much as possible into my mainstream practice. I can't do all of it because it's impossible, but I have a practice of over 2000 patients. I'm burning out for the last year or so. I've been trying to do almost 90% of this, everybody, and it's just not possible. So that's why you have you get into places where you've got to pay yourself for tests that insurance won't cover. You can't do it if they're having a practice where they see people every 15, 20 minutes, even if they see people every 30 minutes and there's 2000 of them. So there are significant barriers. I don't have the answers. I think if you're in a place where you can't find a provider that does this or you can't afford it, you have to do a ton of work on your own. You've, there are reliable sources of this information online in blogs and in books and in podcasts. You've got to take copious notes and you've got to shop for doctors who are at least open-minded to saying, I don't know everything. I'm happy for you to help me learn more things. And I'm happy to order tests you know, for you to take back to whoever can help you interpret them. There is a movement underway where I'm seeing, and you probably are too, more people that are trying to create yeah. tools where they say, look, I can't see every patient, you know, and, and certainly even if I could see everyone, I can't necessarily see them the way the time take required to do this for an insurance copay. But let me create tools to get this information to the masses and help them do it themselves. It's happening. I do think we're going to see that in Excellent. huge numbers in the next 10 years. Yeah, I, I do see. I feel the same way with regards to people typically come to me for prostate and urological problems. And I see the same thing is limited. I'm only one person. I can't see everyone. And I take a lot of time with each person. And I think one of the things that I'm working on, not that I think I'm working on actual courses, online courses where you just come in and as a healthcare practitioner and you have an idea of what to do, some sort of practice guidelines on if they come with this, you do this from an integrative yeah. aspect is this, yeah. nutraceuticals, this, you know, right. so forth. I think that I think that all these problems that are that are that we have in medicine now, it's also an opportunity for people like you and I to contribute to making a change while preserving our own health. We're not we're never short in passion to make a difference and you know, hit home runs with our, in our clinic. But I think that as practitioners, we need to be very careful with burnout I agree. and not keeping ourselves healthy. If we should be the example to our I patients. I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. It's a tough Alan, line. Thanks to so walk. much. What's that? It's a tough line to walk. Constant challenge. Yeah. Yeah. We'll keep talking about that and keep, at least keep each other on our toes and in, in good health. Such a pleasure. I'm going to let you go because uh, we're going to have all the links to you and your practice on our show notes and every podcast platform. 
thanks so much. I really appreciate you and your time. We'll have you back, Alan. Thank yeah, you so much. I love doing it. Thank you for having me. It's been amazing. Thank you. So long, everyone. See you next time. Dr. Geo signing off. Talk to you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.